forgive uh, an outburst of alliteration, but the Little Wireless Program is about to welcome you to the wide and wonderful life of the Wonder Woman, Wendy McCarthy. How to describe Wendy and where to start a country girl who went on to become one of the founding members of the women's electoral lobby back in 72, a passionate advocate for family planning here in Australia, as well as a campaigner on many other women's issues. She's been on more foundations, boards, advisory councils and panels than you can poke a stick at, everything from the ABC to Circus Oz. And she used uh, the claustrophobia of COVID to write a new biography, very appropriately called Don't Be Too Polite Girls, a phrase that comes from uh, a song by the marvellous Glenn Tomasetti. The book is published by Alan and Unwin. A little vignette jumps out of her biography that back in 1972 she was on her way to her first radio interview and had to pull over the car to be sick from nerves. But these days, of course, it's the interviewer rather than the interviewee who has cause for nervousness. In your first interview back in 72, the interviewer asked you how a nice woman like you got involved in women's lib. Do you remember what you said? I don't remember the exact words. I mean, whatever I wrote in the book was as close as possible. But what I I wanted to say, and I've I've been asked that many times, is that I really believe that women need to have their voices heard. And I would have said that more in the language of the day. But I found myself also saying it's not just about women's liberation because that was a tricky term then and I sort of went on to talk about well. But I'm much more direct now. Billy McMahon, of course, wasn't interested in women's issues and realised he'd made a mistake. He made a very big mistake because he refused to entertain it too late and he, the promises he made were picked up by Whitlam and, and expanded into all sorts of things like particularly the Royal Commission into Human Relationships, which Billy McMahon had talked about. He didn't really know what he was talking about, but he sort of <laughs> said, oh, we'll look into it at some time. Now, so in a sense at the time you were in a bit of denial about being a, a woman's liver, but later you realised there'd be no well without it. Absolutely, there would have been no well without women's liberation. And I still think how interesting it is the way it happened. And I remember when your friend was at the, Ronald McDonald was at The Age and The Age wrote about women's electoral lobby that it was the election must go down in history in 72 as the first in which the average woman is really interested and much of this interest is due to well. Because well was a broader base view of women's liberation and definitely more acceptable to most women, although most of them now would recognise that we were back-to-back. Do you remember how you got involved with Well? Because at the time you were home with your second kid. What drew you or lured you into activism? I Probably when I arrived back in Australia after living overseas for three years, having read so many books about women, which I hadn't read before I left. I'd read Betty Friedan. But I hadn't really read that and looking at other women. But when I came back and I was pregnant, 
and I wanted to have Gordon present at the birth. And I was told all the things I couldn't do. That's never gone down well with me. And the, when You I see, to, people will be astonished to hear that. I remember having to fight for the right of seeing my first child born. We weren't allowed in. Well, we decided, my, the obstetrician I went to said, I think you're a candidate for the Childbirth Education Association which had just started with the express purpose of including husbands in birth and encouraging women to make different choices about birthing. And I wanted to be do psychoprophylaxis and be awake and aware, etc. And what was fascinating, it was a hard fight, but he was there and all the members of education had their babies with their husband present. And it spread like wildfire. And there's nothing better when you start out as an activist and a campaigner to win a battle against the establishment, which was the medical establishment of the maternity hospitals, who said, oh, those men, they'll faint, they're no value at all there, you know, etc." And it was so enraging. Anyway, we won it. Now if the whole family's not there, Philip, there's something wrong. It's 50 years since that uh, fateful campaign where the work of the women's electoral lobby got some women's issues on the agenda. Do you think it's still difficult, this is what Dorothy Dixer, to get women's issues on the agenda? I think it's still difficult to get them taken seriously and there's a lot, a lot of obfuscation presently about, oh, I've done that from government. Well, the government says it listens Basically, it files. It files things in systems and said, yes, we're looking at that. Kate Jenkins' report sat for 18 months and activists had to push and push and push. To, it's a very, very good piece of work. And they had to push to get it seriously considered. And it's still not completely done, but, you know, we're, we're making progress. I think what's depressing or enraging, both, is that we still have to rehearse so many of the tedious arguments about why women's issues matter. And when people put things, um, party policies up about what's important, we're still talking coal. I mean, women are more important than coal. Oxymoron. Do you remember, of course you do, what your five demands uh, that you took to the election? Of course, the top of the list was equal pay. Well, we won that in court, you know, as Mary Gordon said, we won it a couple of times, the equal pay thing, but we still haven't got it. There's still a 23% pay gap. Um, we had we wanted 24-hour day childcare. Well, we got that at the uh, ABC, that's the Wendy McCarthy Childcare Centre. Um, but, you know, as it turned out, there wasn't a need for 24 hours, but there was a need for a workforce. At that stage, the orchestras were part of the ABC. But I think that uh, we had that. We had uh, free access to contraception, um, abortion on demand, better education for women. So we, we, we had the girls shopping list. And, you know, Philip, it's still the same. It's just moved on in a different way. It's interesting, isn't it, that so many of the great debates in Australian political life are simply echoes of debates we've had in the past, you know, generations ago in some cases. Yes, so anti-discrimination legislation is an interesting one. It was a hugely long debate, Convention on the Rights of the Child. And for me, the fascinating thing about these debates is that they're about issues that people say don't matter in social policy and government. And yet when it comes to the point, 
every single member of parliament wants to express a view about these matters. And then they go off the burner. So we're still talking about accessible, quality childcare. And we know the best investment is to invest in vulnerable children. There's a delightful part in the uh, in your book where your mother and mother-in-law both thought that your husband would leave you if you didn't pipe down. But, of course, he was very supportive. Yeah, he always had my back, Gordon McCarthy. And he was interested and proud in what I was, of what I was doing. So, you know, that makes a really big difference in a relationship when you're sharing that and you're sharing children and sharing work and sharing a love life and, and so on. And to have someone who has your back, I mean, he, he didn't, you know, he offered his advice occasionally and uh, was mostly right and mostly I took it. But it was, it was a thing that he just ex- trusted my judgment. Wendy, did you ever consider running for public office yourself? Yes. And I had the invitation, well, the first one was in um, the council, local government, and we were changing the government of North, uh, the, the, uh, North Sydney Council because we were fighting to keep McMahon's Point from being turned into uh, an engineering site, really, and a high residential development. The, the plan was for five Blues Point towers up the hill. Um, and we won that, and the marvellous Carol Baker became Mayor of North Sydney. In the second round, second election, I mean, I campaigned for her and never thought of myself as the front runner. And the next time round, I went on a ticket two down, I think, from a bloke who asked if I'd go on the ticket. I hated every single minute of it. I hate asking people to vote for me. You're, I, better, you're better at policy, aren't you, than selling yourself? I'm better at strategy and policy than selling myself. And I love, I love enabling other people. I'm a teacher. I love getting other people's voices out there. And yet you gave up teaching. That must have been a wrench. It was a big wrench because... Here I was, shiny up, you know, six years a teacher and being told because I was having a baby that I couldn't have a job, a permanent job or couldn't be considered for re-employment. And then I went off to teach in TAFE and when I applied for the job that I'd been doing for six months or eight months at TAFE, they said, no, it, there was a bloke who really needed it and I was, I was well off. You should have gone to the pub where the networking was done. I know, I know. They told me that. Well, I, I didn't want to go to the pub with them on Friday night. I wanted to go home. <laughs> okay. You'd already established connections and interest in the family planning so that that was where your next career was. It must have been a very exciting time to be part, part of that change. It was absolutely wonderful and amazing. First of all, the classroom became the community. Well, community became the classroom. And suddenly I was working in lots of schools, working with the Department of Education on what they call their personal development program, which was a, a beautifully written program. I mean, light years ahead of anything we've got now. And family planning folded into that and took the front running on that very, very comfortably. And something I believed in so passionately to be able to talk about that in an approved way. And that's where, you know, we commissioned that very charming young man you knew so well, Phil Noyce, to make these 
films on sex education. He made. That's right, of, Phil and Jan Sharp. Jan Sharp, that's right. They met on those and subsequently married. Okay. And you, heavens above, wrote a sex advice column for the Daily oh, yes. Mirror. I know, I know. And family I'll people edit that said bit to out. Me, it's I know. Not you must be so ashamed of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I think sex is for everyone. Yeah. The thing we've got to remember is that Whitlam had to remove the luxury tax from contraception. Yes. It was called the lipstick tax, 30%. And he did it. He did, I mean, he, probably every politician ought to have a chance to have those three months that Whitlam and Barnard had to think through what they really want to do when they're in government and to set up enabling machinery. But so often governments just rush in and they're, you know, paying back people who voted for them about X, Y, or Z. By having those three months and making that, you know, he made a fabulous statement, one of his first speeches, I think it was his first speech, about removing the um, contraception. It said so much to women. He put it on the PBS too. He did. He did. Okay. Now, you left family planning after 10 years, and uh, but you've maintained this passion for the issues of contraception and abortion. You were involved in the recent successful campaign to decriminalise abortion in New South Wales. That must have been a very sweet victory. It was a beautiful victory. And I was working with many of the people whom I'd worked with in women's electoral lobby and some of their daughters and families it was it was so amazing and and the health organ you know, we had 70 organizations at the uh, joining us through the campaign doctors amas nurses social workers and to get that declaration publicly from so many of those organizations who'd been silenced in the in the early days to have them i mean there were individual doctors who were outstanding in the early days but to get that whole health role of professionals and players to get it and also the support of the New South Wales government. I never doubted that. In uh, No, I did doubt. A couple of times I thought we might not get it through. But then the government was rock solid. Bob Ellicott, who was one of the, the better libs, invites you to uh, the National Women's Advisory Council and that brought you to Canberra. It did bring me to Canberra, although I'd been in Canberra, well, not much, but a, a bit with family with women's electrobi, um, and especially in International Women's Year in 1975. Um, but it did bring me in a quite different way because that council led by Beryl Beaurepaire and supported very strongly by Malcolm Fraser gave us access to politicians. Beryl just used to say to us, go to the top, you've got to go and talk to every politician in this building and make sure they understand that the position of women, the status of women in Australia has to be changed. Go girls. <laughs> Off we went, like good girls. <laughs> now, Alicott noted your comments about how many male politicians would preface their comments with, my wife thinks. That's a familiar phrase at the moment. It's, it is unbelievable, isn't it? And when we and when Karen Phelps' campaign was on in Wentworth, we'd go up to hand out a vote and he'd say, no, no need to give two voting cards. My wife votes the same as me. We'll share the card. I thought I think they thought they were doing something for the environment about the paper. But I'm thinking, <laughs> don't, don't tell me that. 
But that harks back to an era when it was assumed that a wife would always vote the way her husband said. Well, it seems that there are still quite a few men who think that's an appropriate behavioural response to voting. I just, re- I just would say to them, look, you just go in there. You, never, you don't have to tell anyone. This is your one opportunity to do something, to use the power of your vote, and you don't have to tell anyone. Someone says, who did you vote for? Say none of your business, or I'm not prepared to share that, or tell them what you like. Now, let's introduce another character, and that's our old friend John Button. Tell me about the phone call you got from John. Sunday night in Longerville, 7 o'clock. Kids scratchy. We'd just come back from the farm, grubby, wet children sort of running through the house waiting for their dinner. Pick up the phone, send it a button here. Wendy McCarthy, yes. I I think I'd met him once, but I didn't didn't really know him. And he said, "Um, look, we... The government thinks that you'd be a very good person to be on the board of the ABC. At that moment, Sam McCarthy hit a radiator and we had an open, the only open bar radiator and I'm screaming and saying, I can't talk to you. Ring me back in half an hour. And so we rescue Sam, who wasn't burnt, but anyway, was putting on fuss. But anyway, your instinct is always to say yes and think about it later. So Correct. you say yes to John. Uh, but not in matters of, I, I never say to women, yes, and think about it later, but not in matters of sexual engagement. That's a different story. Everything else is open, but you always think about the other. So I think, anyway, he, he asked me, and I was so gobsmacked. <laughs> I said, yes, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that, thinking, I wonder what it means. Because, but, I mean, I was familiar with federal politicians and so I'd had those three years, four years on the National Women's Advisory Council. So I got off the phone and I said to Gordon, that was John Button calling me to ask me if I go on the board of the ABC. And he said, oh, probably someone kidding. And I said, <laughs> no, it was John Button. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, later you realise you're being offered the deputy chair to... Yes, uh... that was Sunday. But my Monday I was offered, w- would I consider myself... Um, available to be chair. I said yes. Deputy, yes. And then on Tuesday I was asked if I'd be the deputy chair and there it was. Wednesday it was announced. To a rather fine fellow called Ken Meyer. Yeah, such a dear man. Was indeed. Okay. Uh, You've had, uh, of course the ABC then is very different to the ABC now. You discovered that uh, there was hardly anyone, any women in ABC management. Uh, yes, there were no women in ABC management. There was a woman lawyer um, who was part of the senior managers group, senior officers um, association it was called, uh, and a woman who did um, some publicity. But there were not, no line managers of women at that time and no woman read the news. Margaret Throsby had done it as a fill-in a couple of times, but there were no women who read the news. I mean, it is extraordinary <laughs> you think about that now, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But, of course, you had a few helpers on the board. You had uh, the wonderful sister Veronica Brady, for example. She was just such a fabulous choice. And so disarming and so intellectual and so so compellingly and commandingly humble. And that gave her an authority that people listened to her voice. She was very, very impressive. And when, had when, Jan Marsh. 
Jan Marsh from the ACTU. Yes, I'd forgotten that Jan was on the board as well. Yeah. Now our paths have crossed quite often over the over the decades, and uh, one one time was the as the Australian Bicentennial Authority. A yes. difficult time for you. It was a very difficult time because I went there under an assumption that I would play a particular role that had not been only very broadly outlined, and that. And I went there some months after I'd secured the job because there were staged arrivals. And I had to really decide whether I was just going to walk out the door or whether I was going to stay. I was enchanted by the idea it was an opportunity to be a sort of back side, front side flip to what the ABC did so well, which is to explore the experience of being Australian and what that meant. And I've done that a lot when I lived overseas. I used to think about it a lot. But by the time I got on the ABC board, it wasn't just about being Australian. It was being about an Australian woman. And the ABA offered, I thought, that opportunity at a grassroots level. And and I still believe that that was one of the better things it did. And anyway, the the... After about six weeks, um, there was a bit of a shake-up and uh, I was given pretty clear um, instructions as to what I was to do and I got on with it. And then then the board started falling apart. You'll remember Randall McDonald started running a campaign. Um, yes, I must admit I was involved in that a bit. <laughs> I'm glad you're saying that, not me. <laughs> okay. Now, you have some interesting interviews in your time, but your account of an earlier interview for the Bicentennial Authority was a shocker. Unbelievable. I, I was asked to call in and have an interview, so I called in and have a chat about the job if I'd be interested. So I thought it'd be a pre-job interview. And I always remember things by what I wear. So I remember I had this black dress that had a button down front. I had black stockings on. I walked in. And there were three men in the room, and I thought, actually, this is not what I'd have worn if I was having, thought I was having a formal interview. And that they asked me questions about, you've got a lot of children. You'd have to stay away at night, you know, for some of the work. I said, I've been into an international con- conventions. I've been travelling overseas. I've been travelling nonstop. But when you're put in that position, it all sounds like you're making it up as you go. And then one man said to me, well, of course, he said, my wife thinks that adolescence is a much harder time to be a parent and your children will all be adolescents during this time and what are you going to do about all those children? I said, there are only three of them. And he, <laughs> and he goes, oh. Anyway, David Moore, who was um, one of the people doing the interview, took it as a, 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 one of the people. I referred it to him. And he made it one of the test cases for the discrimination board, anti-discrimination board, about how not to ever interview someone. And that was for the New South Wales Bicentennial Authority. And needless to say, I didn't get it. But they hired a scoutmaster to do it. <laughs> and six months later, he was gone. And I'd gone to the federal body, which was a better place to be. So there is a goddess. You've been on so many boards over the years. And uh, on many, you were the only woman and the numbers of women on board, well, it's on the increase, but it's only 35% of the 
on a, on A's S6, 300 boards. I think that's a pity, and I think that we tend to be overexcited if we get a third of the action. Well, I'm interested in 50%, so I'm not too excited about 35%. And it's, a, it's just a bit of a creep, you know. It's not going there in a fast way. And the other thing, Philip, Australia now is at the top and has been for some time in the world on all measures for the education of women. We have a highly educated women in our country. It's not a supply issue. It's about demand. And people will obfuscate before they ask women onto boards. And it's just a pity. I th- Just while, before we leave the board issue, I th- I've always thought there should be a limit on the number of boards someone can sit on. So you get, say, Nick Griner, who was on more than 10 boards at one point. Uh, yeah. How many are you on? Uh, at the moment, I'm on one, and I don't intend to have any more than that. My life has changed now. I don't want to do that. I feel very passionate about this one. It's a, it's based on the Good Start Childcare model of a for-purpose, um, not-for-profit entity. So you get the best of both systems, and the money's all reinvested in the company, and the director fees are very low. And I'm I'm happy with that. At this very happy with that at this stage of my life. So we look at. We're looking around the care of people and care being a sort of central issue in our community and it certainly will be for the next decades and we've got to make a good economic story about care, whether it's aged care or early learning care. And I think that's that's something, well, I'm, I'm really enjoying that. Now, one of the reasons you've had such a great career is your capacity for hard work, but you also had Gordon. I did. I did. I couldn't have had a more perfect partner, really, um, in, a, in a contemporary world. I mean, he was more adventurous than me in our early life in terms of um, travel and those things. And, and there's no doubt, you know, I, I would say to anyone that the two things that can change you the most are education and travel. And they're the things that no one can really take away from you, especially your education. It's yours for life once you, once you get it. And hopefully it becomes a lifelong activity to learn. And I think then... Gordon was a very interesting entrepreneurial person. You know, he set up businesses and public companies and things like that. And and then for the, for the last 30 years of his life, he was a beef producer, which is, you know, probably what he would have done if he'd had his way when he first left school and had any money. And yet he fought illness for so long. Anyway, look, Wendy, thank you for that. It's been terrific. Wendy McCarthy, mentor, activist, campaigner, and author of a new and, she insists, last biography, Don't Be Too Polite Girls, published by Alan and Unwin. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.